Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. We are back in the studio today, fresh from our show on the ground in Cabot. And what a day that was. I just want to review that we spent the morning at Harry's Hardware in downtown Cabot hearing the stories of those who dealt with the flooding. Two giant culverts clogged and a raging Winooski River behind the hardware store that threatened to take out the entire town. But if you're going to have a flood, best have it in a town full of loggers and farmers and people who work with their hands, who race to town on their heavy machinery to clear that culvert and rescue people. Joanna Thibault, the owner of Harry's Hardware, was rescued out of a, out of the store in a bucket loader as the back of her store was ripped off by the raging river. We spoke to Dale Brown, a coordinator at Neighbors in Action, which gives away boxes of food every day, every other week to needy neighbors. And after the show, I walked down to uh, the Neighbors in Action headquarters, which is at the, I'm going to get this wrong, Kiwanis, Knights of Columbus, I can't remember, the clubhouse, uh, which they are in the process of buying. They've raised the $150,000 to buy it from the town. The line of cars for free boxes of food was 25 cars long. And uh, that was surprising. And it, it makes me, uh, want to do more and, uh, it makes me realize that we have neighbors who are in trouble, uh, and not just because of the flood, flood. And, uh, they, Dale Brown and his wife, uh, uh, she's the boss and, uh, they give away these boxes of food every other week to their neighbors. And, uh, you don't, it's not like you've got a, prove uh, your net worth or your income. Uh, you pretty much just pull up and a group of homeschoolers in Neighbors in Action's t-shirts do all the work. They fill the boxes and they don't even get out of their car. They just, uh, the, 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 the recipients don't get out of their car. These, these kids just uh, give the boxes, uh, put them in the back of the car. It was a sight to see. Perhaps the most fun was the walk-in guest, my college classmate Betsy McKay, a Cabot residence, resident who I had not seen since college. Take a listen to the podcast on WDEVradio.com. We had a lot of fun, met some new friends, and made this commitment. Saturday night, Harry's Hardware, 7 p.m. for live music. It seems that I owe Dale Brown a beer. Uh, I, I am going to draw the line at buying beer for the entire place because I have a feeling it fills up. But I'll be there tomorrow night, bellying up to the bar at the Den in Harry's Hardware, the only hardware store in New England that has a bar. And I promise you this, we will take the show back to Harry's and Cabot. It was an inspirational morning, a lot of fun. It was great to hear jo- Joanna talk about her pride in the community, the school, and her neighbors. By the way, someone has built a deck next to the hardware store where you can sit with lunch and take in some sun. It's fabulous. I'll see you at the Den at Harry's Hardware tomorrow night around 7 o'clock. You know, come to think of it, that would be a great place for a Rusty Deweese show. Even better, Kevin Ellis interviewing Rusty Deweese at Harry's Hardware. Just a thought. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll noodle on that. Also this morning, 
Within a 24-hour period, a Republican debate kicks off the election season. A former president, his lawyers, and many others surrender to a Georgia prosecutor and a judge to be processed under an indictment accusing them of a criminal conspiracy to take over the U.S. government. And at the same time as the debate, former President Donald Trump does an interview with fired Fox radio show host Tucker Carlson. I watched some of that, and it was a long way from Walter Cronkite. Uh, for better or for worse, we are, as I've said many times before on this show, in uncharted waters. And uh, we'll see whether the democracy can uh, can absorb all this, process it, and uh, come out stronger on the other side. The Republicans at the debate are running to be president of a country uh, whose current president, whose current president is over 80 years old and would be 86 years old at the end of a second term, Joe Biden. And he is mired, at least according to polls, in a, 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 a muck of unpopularity. Uh, so we'll see where it all goes. Our first guest today, after the break, is is a fellow named Jonathan Hoffman, a Northfield resident and founder of Direct Aid International, which builds schools in Afghanistan. And, you know, you run across uh, foreign aid guys like this and you think, wow, I'm so glad he's doing it. I'm not sure I could do it. And then he told me that he has built, funded and built, 57 elementary schools in the country of Afghanistan, and that really made my jaw drop, so I wanted to have him on the show. Uh, we'll do that right after the break. Then we head to Washington, D.C. to talk, uh, have our weekly chat with Bob Nay about all things Washington, D.C. I suspect we'll talk more about the, the debate, uh, the Trump arraignment, and other D.C. issues. At 10.15, we'll go back to Barry. Uh, we'll talk to Allison Novak, Novak of Seven Days about her visit to uh, Barry to talk to those uh, affected by the flood. And it's I'm glad we're doing it because it's really easy to turn our attention away from this disaster. And it is still a disaster, um, whether it's Montpelier, Barry, Johnson, where we were, or Cabot. People are still suffering and they don't want to leave their house. They're worried about their their pets and it is, it's still very, very real. So we're going to talk to Allison about that. And lastly, at 1030, be sure to stick with us. Vermont Viewpoint film and TV critic Keenan Ellis from California on the movie Barbie, which I have now seen. And our latest idea on the show, what are the top movies of all time that you should see if you want to start off your movie viewing career? Uh, Keenan told us that he's started this, uh, this, uh, effort because so many of his next generation friends, I'm talking 30 year olds, don't watch movies. And he's the movie geek out there. And he, all his friends say to him, what are the top 10 movies that I should start seeing? Greg Titus is nodding his head through the window in the control room. Uh, I bet he's got his, his list. So if you're going to start off, your movie viewing career, uh, where, where would you start? We're not going to include Casablanca, The Great Escape, the, the, well, those are my favorite, All the President's Men. Uh, we're, we're gonna, I, knowing Keenan, we're gonna go a little deeper beneath the surface, um, for, for the top 10 movies where you should start. We want your ideas and suggestions. So join us. 
1030 for that discussion. As always, we hope you'll call us with your questions and comments. We want to hear your movie suggestions. The number to call, 244-1777, or email us at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We're back, and my next guest is Jonathan Hoffman. He is the founder of Direct Aid International, and he is the successful uh, effort behind new schools in rural Afghanistan. And he has just returned from a successful eight-day trip to the country, and he is uh, on the line with us right now. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. It's good to be here. Thank you for your time. Well, so tell us where all this started. I, I said I said before the break that the number 57 schools in rural Afghanistan really made my jaw drop. Tell us, uh, how. let's start at the beginning. How did you get into this and why? And what's it? tell us about the journey. Well, it started in 99. Um, you know, I was teaching and I had summers off and Kosovo was in the news. And, you know, I thought it could make a difference. And I knew I didn't want to write a check. Uh, to just some aid agency, I knew that most of the money was misspent. So I volunteered and worked with a group called the Balkan Sunflowers. And I did four trips to Kosovo, and I did some livestock purchases and, and helped with some winter winterization and food and fuel for them and coats and clothes. And then it's, it, it kind of died out, fizzled out. Funding wasn't there. The interest in Kosovo went away. Um, and then we all know the events that happened after that that opened up the doors to Afghanistan. And my blood got circulating again, and I thought that I would try and see if I could make some inroads into getting into Afghanistan, and I did through UNHCR, and I worked with them the first summer, and they let me stay at their home office in Ghazni, uh, south of Kabul. And I did a school that summer, a three-room school for girls in rural Afghanistan, and uh, that, that started the process. I also did a water project that year. Um, and then I came back the second year, and I did a I did a uh, library in another part of the country, and then I came back the third year, and we built another rural school, and it just kept evolving from that. And, you know, I just kept trying to raise funds and gain interest in it. And one thing led to another where over the years I found some substantial funding that is kind of fizzling out right now. But um, I was able to continue building two, three schools a year. And so basically what I do is this is how I spend my summer vacation is, I go over to Afghanistan. I spend one, two, sometimes three weeks, depending on the year and the security issues and and the need for me to be there, and um, travel the rural parts of the countryside, meet with the villagers, and we set up arrangements to distribute funds to them, Um, you know, a third in the beginning, a third in the middle, and a third at the end of the project. And we keep tabs on it now much easier with cell phone service. I can get pictures and updates. I got one the other day of the schools being built. And um, so the process has been ongoing. It's been very simple. It's just me and a board of directors and a, a band of volunteers that help me with the various things that I need to have done, uh, whether it's editing my newsletter or helping me keep my website current. Um, so it's just one foot in the other. One person called it a seat of the pants operation. Um, I, no one on, on board on my end um, receives any kind of a salary or a stipend of any kind. I have been doing this now for close to 25 years and and have put money out of my pocket but not put any back in. Jonathan, wh- when you say 
I did a school, uh, I can barely weed my garden. When you say, you know, you'd go on your summer vacation over to Afghanistan and do a school, what goes into the doing? There's the fundraising, there's the hiring of the folks who are going to build this uh, school, and then you have to actually build it. That's quite a process. It is. And, and really, I never lift a stone. Um, you know, it's really something what's evolved and it's great. And I like the way it's evolved is, is that my job is pretty simple. I can start a school within a day. Uh, once I meet the village and I start a contract with them and, you know, uh, discuss how we're going to do this, everything else is left up to the village. It's left up to the local community to decide where the school is going to be built, the design of the school, who's going to, who's going to, um, hire the contractor or who, what contractor are they going to hire? If they are going to hire a contractor, some of them have been built 100% by the village and others have hired contractors to do the work. And those schools have actually come out much better. The way we distribute the funds and part of the agreement is is that this is a gift. And one-third of the, the cost of the project is on the villagers. In other words, if I give you $10,000, then there's another $5,000 in the form of Labor, building materials, money, if they have it, uh, supervision, and they decide, you know, they, they, they contribute in that way. And it's, it's a village school. It's a community school. And the community then goes to the government. And they're doing that, you know, in the previous government. And now with this present government, it's the same process where they will then go and apply to the government to become a government school. And all my schools have been accepted that way over time. And how do you, uh, I mean, American understanding of Afghanistan, I think, is limited at best, including my own. How do you navigate the current government, uh, the Taliban, uh, with its restrictions on certain schooling, uh, restrictions around women? How do you navigate that, the, the politics of, of the government over there? That's a good question. Um, I, I, I've, I've been, I know Afghanistan probably better than most, um, even the, the people that have been going over there for years. And in, in part because I travel to the rural parts of the countryside, and I actually am outside of Kabul, outside of my air-conditioned office, outside my team. It's just me. I am the team. Along My team is Afghans. So that's how I have always operated and that's how I can plan to continue. And that's what I'm doing now is, is that I've met with the local governors and the local officials. I've introduced myself to them. I tell them who I am, tell them what I want to do. And really it begins and ends with the fact that I am going to stop into the village, give them a gift over time, over the construction period of money to build this school. And I come back and I document it. So this is the following year. So my, Involvement in the actual construction or any of the decision-making processes is nil, except for coming into the village and and meeting with them. After that, it is it is the empowerment of the village that takes over, and that has been very cool to see over time. And I'm seeing it again now. And one of the things that I've learned, I mean, I've dealt with numerous tribes over there, and they are broken down into tribes. And so, part of what I do understand that maybe maybe most people don't is the culture and the traditions and the laws. And without getting into the political aspects of these and of this and what other people write about, um, a lot of what 
I see is still continuing today and what I've seen over the last 20 years. Um, I have approached this government with the understanding that we could sit here all day and talk about what we disagree upon. Uh, I would rather we focus on what we agree upon, and that is building schools. And I'm there to respect and observe their culture, their tradition, and their laws. And they, they, and we're trying to build a foundation of mutual trust and uh, understanding. And that's going to take time. But so far, I have met with officials in both Bamiyan and Ghazni province um, at the local, at the government, at the uh, governor level, and at the local level, and they have welcomed me and they are asking me to come back and to continue doing what I'm doing, which is not getting involved in the politics or involved in anything more than basically giving them a jump start on being able to do something for themselves on their own. Let me ask you a a, a, a purposeful, uh, provocative question. And that is, you know, if you read Paul Farmer, the late Paul Farmer's book uh, about building hospitals and health clinics in Haiti, uh, at some point we think of some of these societies as failed societies and no amount of foreign aid or school building is going to lift them out of poverty and uh, lack of education, lack of health care, et cetera. And yet, 57 schools later, you're still at it. Can you sort of address that question? Well, I first of all, I've, I've completed – I've started schools number 55 and 56 this summer. Ah. I'm in the process of raising the funds for number 57 right now. Uh, and 58 is my hope. I'm, I, I just want to keep going. Um, to address that, I look at building a school as like planting a, a, an acorn, like an oak tree. Right. Really, you know, and my dad was a forester. I do it all the time. I understand. And I also was in education for 20 years. And when I look at a rural Afghan village that doesn't have a school or that has limited opportunities to educate their children and – you 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 build a school and these you got to look at it over two or three it's generational you got to look at it over two or three generations before you'll actually start seeing the results from a school in other words the kids that are going to school now they're going to grow up and they're going to have children and in that time period how much improvement is going to be made on the education in that community not much but over time over two or three generations of children raising their children and sending them to school and if they take the same kind of interest that we do here in our communities for our children and our education, then you start to see an improvement. So I look at this as, a, you know, when I sit down with a village, the one thing that I tell them you know, of many is, is that you and I will not see the results of this school. It will be your children's children that will see the results of this. And, and that's the way I approach it. Uh we're not used to that in this country. We want to build the school and get a short-term result. How do well, every, um, Yeah, go ahead. Well, everything, you know, we we look at we have the New York minute mentality um with right. everything that we do. And and that's and and so do I, so do you. I mean, you know, if we sit at a drive-through and we wait more than 3 minutes, we're like, what's up? And so it, it's it's hard. It's it's hard to address that, and you know, it's some it's very frustrating for me at times to sit there and you wish you could just snap your fingers and make it happen. Uh, there's some things. There's easy fixes, but 
in all honesty, I'm, I, I've just taken this approach, and it's calmed me down. I've learned, I've grown a lot over the years of doing this with, you know, my first couple projects, I wanted results. I wanted results. And, and they were going, you know, the villagers were going to my UNHCR or, or my colleague who was helping me and going, what's up with this guy? And now I've taken the approach, and my donors have trusted me over the years to know that, you know what, if it takes a second year to get it completed, then it takes a second year. Um, and so I've, I've learned to calm down and understand that, that they, their sense of time, and, you know, every village is different. Some of them can organize quickly. One school that I'm building right now has already got the foundation set. The other one hasn't even brought their building materials in. But in, in, in defense of that, the, the one village that I was working with that has the foundation set, we've been, work, we've been communicating with them for five, six months, whereas the other one uh, I just met here in early June. So there's an expecting time period where they're going to have to take some time. And I'm hoping I can get over there this, this fall and maybe go over and check on them and, and just give them some encouragement, but not cracking the whip by any means. How do you raise money for this kind of work, Jonathan? It's, this is not the kind of work that, uh, that, that funders automatically say, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, instead of giving to, to my, uh, you know, my local Vermont charity, uh, I'm going to give it to, a to build a school in Afghanistan. How do you add, what's your message to funders? Well, first of all, right now, for me personally, it will be a very difficult time to raise funds because of the need out there that we all know, especially in Vermont, but also uh, regional and worldwide. There's there's a number of, of issues out there, you know, whether it's the Ukraine or whether it's Haiti or whether it's Sudan uh, on the international level. Um, I, you know, I, I started out and I'm st- basically starting over again right now. Um, with going back to the grassroots level. And over time, I, I had built up a foundation of support. And then I, I got a couple of foundations that were able to support me financially, and they were the bulk of my, of my donations. And that made it a lot easier for me to fundraise, and it also made it very easy for me to plan uh, what my next projects were going to be. So we're in a flux right now. We're in a state of not having the money in front of me, to go back and build another school, um, I'm I'm hoping that I can raise that money so that I can do that. Um, you know, I think bare minimum is twenty five thousand dollars, which is not a lot, but it's also a lot. I am going back to my website and and encouraging people to go to PayPal and or mail a check that's that at the address listed on the website. Jonathan, what does it cost to build a school in a society like Afghanistan? Not as much as you'd think. Um, you know, the, the schools that I'm building are very uh, well constructed. They're built from stone and cement. That's the one thing that I, I basically insist upon. Um, and when you consider that they're using local materials, I mean, this is a very rural uh, location. These people are not living in the same um, zone of, uh, you know, I, I don't know, of reality that we have. It's, it's just a totally different type of world. And so everything there is done by hand and collected by hand. Um, they do have vehicles for the stone and stuff, but it, it cost me ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 for a six-room school. More like fifteen to twenty is what I'd like to get to because I'd like to improve upon what I'm building this time around, which is 
I'd like to put metal roofs on some of them. But all in all, it's a pretty simple process. There's no electricity. There's no running water. In part, there's no electricity available. And, you know, if the village wants a well or, or a source of water, they normally will pick a location that has that included with it. My uh, organization just builds the, the, the building itself, and that's as far as we go. And we, we pay for that, um, or we assist them in paying for that. And after that, it's, it's, their, um, it's, it's their job, it's their duty to, to continue with it. And so we give them the building. And then from there, if they want more improvements, they, move, they, they do it themselves. How did you come to this work? Uh, it, this is not work that everyone uh, is drawn to. Where did you grow up? What was your family life like? Why? What? What sort of uh, in your upbringing, nature or nurture, uh, led you to the, in this direction? Born and raised in Vermont, um, moved several times uh, throughout the state. Rutland, Jay, ended up in Northfield. I now reside in central Maine for now. I moved over here to take care of my parents in their last years and, and then bought the, the homestead from my siblings. Um, and, and I'm enjoying it. Whether I to stay here forever is yet to be determined. Um, as far as my upbringing, it, I, I don't look at that as much as my when I started teaching and the community service components that we instructed our students with that really kind of exposed me to something that I was already doing. I'd been on a fire department, had, had been on a school board, you know, volunteered for Special Olympics, et cetera, et cetera. But I hadn't really done anything like this. I think when Kosovo came along, that really struck me when I saw tens of thousands of refugees fleeing the country because they were being persecuted or, be, you know, whatever the violence, or they were scared. And then when Afghanistan opened up, uh, I really felt the desire to sit there to, to go and do something. It evolved around food in the beginning with Kosovo, but by the time I got to Afghanistan, I thought it would be wells and agriculture. Uh, once I got on the ground, um, agriculture was very difficult uh, in, 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 a, in a drought and, and probably wouldn't have. And also, uh, the wells were very difficult. They wanted to dig 80 meters by hand. Um, <clears throat> so those kind of projects were not what I was looking at. The colleague I met, he needed a three-room school. We worked with the Swedish committee. It got done in four or five months. And it was also something that was a need. I was an educator. I saw the need for education. Uh, once I started traveling to the rural countryside, I saw the need for it more and more. I'm not looking for these people to graduate from Harvard. I'm looking for them to just finish grades one through six. And when you do that, you have set a foundation for that community that will um, grow, that they have an opportunity to grow from. If you have a young girl that gets through grades one through six, the infant mortality rate for that young girl when she has children um, is reduced by, I think it's 25 or 50 percent, depending on on how it goes. I'm not sure of the exact numbers. All I know is that is education makes a difference. And if you can give someone the opportunity to learn how to read and write and do some simple mathematical figures, their cognitive ability will improve. And you hope that that's the foundation that they build upon for their family in the future. What? Why did you choose Afghanistan versus Northfield, Vermont, for example? What drives you to do international work? Yeah, I, I I see that. It's not that I still don't contribute to the local community when I can, 
Uh, it's normally by popping some cash in, in, a, in a can, at, at, you know, in a donation jar. Um, I, I really dedicate most of my time and try and not get involved with things locally because it takes so much of my time to do what I'm doing. Uh, one thing that I do acknowledge, though, one thing I, that's clear and obvious to me is, is when I, I see the importance of what we do in our communities and, and what we have for a structure of volunteerism uh, locally that makes it, that gives me the opportunity to go abroad and to be able to do something for somebody that doesn't have the resources or doesn't know how to put the, the resources together for them to actually move forward. That's fascinating. It's, it's just, it's, I'm fascinated by how human beings are built. Some people are built to coach the sixth grade basketball team at the Northfield Elementary School, and you're built to get on a plane and go over there and build schools over there. And it's just fascinating how people are different, which is what makes the world go round. <laughs> Am I right? It does. Well, it does. You know, I, I've also coached basketball, so, you know, at, at the elementary and at the JV level um, and enjoyed that and would love to do it again. You, you, but you are correct, and I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of needs out there. I decided to stick with it because it was something that I could do, and I had the time to do it, and I had, I had built up the connections uh, in Afghanistan, and I'm rebuilding them now, so that I, and, and I've got a very good team on the ground so that I can continue to go over there and, and continue doing what I'm doing. And the person that benefits the most from this is, is me. Um, you know, I've just grown from it uh, internally and, and thoroughly enjoy meeting the different people in the different villages and, and seeing how they live and, and watching their children grow up because over time I've been able to revisit these locations and, and uh, I've actually watched some of them grow up and become um, uh, successful or watch them grow up and take over their family's farm, which is what most of them are going to do. Right. Uh, you know, we are, we have a, a caller who would like to ask a question and it is Joe from Bristol. Joe, welcome to the show. Good morning. And your guest deserves all the praise that we can give him. I would like to know if he had an answer on why Afghanistan is such a poor country. I, I thought they had an agricultural base of some some sort and, and uh, natural resources, but uh, I'm not too familiar with uh, with that uh, with the economics. So perhaps you can explain to us. Thank you. Thank you for the call, Jonathan. Yeah, good question. Um, it, it, there's many tangents to that. One is you know depending on how you read the history, it's been the last twenty, thirty, forty years of incessant war. Um, and that has not allowed them to uh, put their resources and their time and their attention towards improving upon what they had. There was a time, and there will be a time in the future, when they do have uh, uh, agriculture where they'll actually be exporting. Uh, right now, they are, they are an import country uh, where they get mo a lot of their food from it. The other component is the droughts that they've had. Uh, they live and die by the snowfall up in the, in the, in the Hindu Kush. So... Um, and, and some places have fared better than others because of that, and also because they were not in a position where they were actually concerned about a, a battle between the, 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 the two, the two uh, what do you want to call it, opposing forces <laughs> that, that were out there shooting it up. So 
there's, there's a number of reasons why. Um, a lot of a lot of agriculture was, uh, you know, their carizias, their canals, their dams were destroyed. Um, they don't have the time, the money, the resources to rebuild. Um, so they do have the they do have the natural resources, and they have, you know, there's, there's a trillion dollars worth of, of uh, gold and lithium and and oil and everything else that's involved. But when you actually get on the road in Afghanistan outside of the ring road, which is in repair right now, but when you get out into the rural countryside, you will see that there is no infrastructure whatsoever. And that means that there's not even a a dirt road and there's a path, but there's no raised dirt roadbed like we have here for our country roads. So you, you, there's, there's not even, it'll take decades to build the infrastructure that they would need to get the resources out and to the market. Jonathan, uh, when do you next go back to Afghanistan? Do you know yet? I don't. Uh, I'm hoping I'm in the process of trying to raise the funds uh, to, to go back over this fall. Uh, my target is 25 grand at the bare minimum. That would allow for the plane tickets and for the transportation and um and then also the, I'd like to increase the amount up to closer to fifteen thousand dollars for the school, uh, the next school. And I'd also like to have a little reserve in there for cost overruns for the other two schools I'm building. So I'm hoping to get back over there this fall. Um, there's some locations where you could build a school year round, and I would focus on that for my next trip. And um, but I'm waiting is really what it is it's all up and all up to uh, normally i do a one one trip a year in in early like in after the 15th of may is my time that i can go because of the mountains and the snow but if i don't get the funds raised now i'll keep working on it until i do and then i'll go over in the in in early spring what i was going to ask you we've already i think we've figured out what you get from this experience what lessons can we take from your work, those of us who don't go over there with you, what what can we be learning from what you do? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I haven't done a presentation in a while, but just the fact that there is a totally different lifestyle, um, even not as much in the cities. It's more metropolitan, and they have the luxuries or some of them that we have. But when you look at, I always put put it out there as to a family in rural Afghanistan lives as a family and they work as a family. And, you know, I just put it out there as to how many family hours does it take to for a family to survive, to get through the, the, the winter for, for the most part. In other words, Kevin, when was the last time you took a wheelbarrow and filled up a five-gallon jug of water and brought it back to the house for your daily water? Um, when was the last time you lived for a year without electricity <laughs> and, and no refrigeration, uh, no radio, no TV, no newspaper? Um, you know, your communities are pretty much uh, rural, isolated. Uh, even going to the big city of Kabul is unheard of for, I'd say, 80, 90 percent of the population. Maybe the, the father figure and, and one of his sons would go to one of the metropolitan areas to sell their their crop of wheat or onions or potatoes, but the whole family doesn't go, um, you know, and then they use the money from those resources to buy what they need to get through the winter, whether these are the things that they can't grow. 
I was sitting drinking tea and having breakfast, and everything except for the green tea leaves uh, in, in, the, in, in the hot water was raised there within the eyesight of, 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 the, of the veranda that I was sitting on and, you know, the window. So, you know, that's ideal, but it's also, you know, they don't at certain elevations have the opportunity to, to the, the, the season's so short, they can't grow green crops, you know, green vegetables, and lettuce and tomatoes. I'm seeing a little bit more of it, but, you know, it's all rootstock, potatoes, maybe some carrots and some onions and wheat. That's what they, and then they have some, they have a milk cow and, and you know, maybe some sheep. What do they what do they feed a cow if you can't grow grass? What do you feed wow. a cow yeah. in Afghanistan? <laughs> well, the cow stays in in, in the courtyard. That uh, sometimes they do. Most of the villages are located near a source of water, so uh-huh. there's a stream or or a river, or there's a karizi that comes from those streams that feeds them, and you know that feeds their veg their fields. So, and that's you know, I mean, wherever you go, there's there's culverts or or ditches in, in, in the road every hundred yards that are, you know, uh, which slow you down. It's like an, you know, it's like a speed bump. So they, they, um, <laughs> it's hard to describe. They uh, just live off of their means that like they have for literally for like hundreds of years, millennia. Yeah, yeah. Life hasn't changed up there. I mean, and that's the other thing. When we start looking at the differences in our culture and our tradition, um, you know, ours has evolved over time for good or bad. And whereas theirs has pretty much stayed the same for quite some time. I don't want to dare, you know, there's tangents that you can go on to see when certain things change. But really, for the local rural Afghan, regardless of where they live, life hasn't changed for them um, over the centuries, over the generations. It's the same. And that and that culture and that tradition and that concept is handed down from family to family like it is here, but more so there. What? Uh, where can people find you uh, if they want to make a donation or learn more about what you do? Tell us where they can find you online or wherever. Sure. Well, I, the website's the best location if you're website savvy, and it's it's been it's a pretty simple site. Um, it's directaidinternational.org. On that site, there's a PayPal location where you can donate by credit card. Uh, if you choose not to, there is a mailing address um, for the Northfield, Vermont. That's where my office is based, and that's where, uh, you know, that's where I've, and I'm going to keep it there. Uh, I was just in Northfield a couple weeks ago and hope to get back there soon. And then the other, there's also an email address that I can give it to you. It's my last name, Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N, at directaidinternational.org. Um, and I would love to uh, communicate with anybody that, has an interest in supporting the work I do financially and or uh, I'm not looking for volunteers, but I'm always looking for people that that might have a source that might be interested in supporting me. So even if you're not in a position to support me, but you might know of someone or some entity that said, I choose not to fill out grant applications because then I start having to fulfill the obligations of the grant uh, instead of the grant fulfilling the obligations that I want, you know, the, the, the direction I want to go in, which is what we've described, going into a village, giving them a gift, letting them do the best they can with it. Uh, do you deal with the U.S. government uh, in, in your travels and in your work, or do you keep pretty much separate from the State Department and USAID? Yeah, I, I, I haven't. I've had I've met people. Um, I did work with the Vermont National Guard at one time. 
for for several projects, and that was that, that was an honor and a privilege. And um, you know, I got to go to Bagram and stuff like that. Uh, so I don't. To answer your question, I have not been in a position. I have met with and keep in contact from time to time, whether it was in Vermont or now in Maine, with my representatives to just let them, you know, to, to keep them kind of informed on what I'm doing. They know they might know who I am. They might not because I just talk with their assistants. But I don't really go out of my way, nor do they, in working together. Would I be open to it to a degree? I'd be happy to sit down and talk to anybody that has, that wants a better understanding or my version of Afghanistan compared to what they might be getting in a congressional hearing uh, or in a USAID uh, conference. Um, I think that I could give them some insight into some of the uh, avenues that they're discussing now, which is to try and bring uh, more projects uh, to the local level and give it directly to the local level. And that's what I've been doing for 20 years, 22 years, 25 years, actually, when you add Kosovo. So to answer your question, no. Am I open to to uh, having discussions with them and, and, and giving them an idea of what I'm doing? And yes. OK, last question. And it's the most provocative that I can think of. Uh, hmm. What 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 do you get out of this? Uh, are we are you trying to improve the world, or are you trying to uh, assuage uh, first world guilt, uh, or both, or are you just trying to do something good because you're that good a guy? You know what I'm driving at? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, no, I don't think I'm trying to change the world. You know, it's a good question. I remember struggling with this early on in my career doing this. And I kept asking, why am I doing this? And I asked it to a really good friend of mine in Vermont. And we were out at the cabin. And I just said, you know, what is driving me to do this? Is it for my ego? Um, you know, is it for my own self-value? And, and in all honesty, part of the answer to that is yes. I mean, yeah. I get sure. more of the, I get the most out of this than anybody. I win. I win from the villagers that, you know, the kids kiss my hand and the, and, and the old men with tears in their hands because I've come to their village and I'm the first American they've seen. And that's one of the powers that, that, that happens is for me as not an ambassador, but, you know, just going over to these locations and introducing just a simple American, as simple as I might be or not. Um, it, it is who I am. But well, John, the other part of it is, go ahead. Well, I, we've got to go. Uh, but okay. John, Jonathan Hoffman, uh, thank you. DAI International, Google it. You can find it online. Give him a call. And uh, he's trying to raise twenty five grand. That's a drop in the bucket uh, in this country. So uh, best of luck to you, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for your time, Kevin. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group. We're more than just radio. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we're going to head to Washington, D.C. with our weekly guest, D.C. expert extraordinaire, Bob Ney. Bob, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for all the accolades I don't deserve. But. Okay. I am not going to talk about Trump or the Republican oh. debate oh. Okay. Uh, uh, yet. 
I want to ask you about this uh, Prigozhin guy. And when you see that a, a guy who threatened the uh, the reign of Vladimir Putin dies in a plane crash and the media is saying, well, we don't really know what happened or whether he was on the manifest or – and the, those of us on the ground just know – that uh, as as the CIA director William Burns said the other day, for Putin, revenge is a dish best cold, best served cold. Mm-hmm. I think Putin slept well. Let's let's put it that way. You know, Kevin, since the beginning of this whole saga with you know the whole the whole group and the Wagner group, and the fact that if you look at the history of Putin and how far he goes back, you know with uh, the Wagner group, um, then I I think we can understand how after supposedly Prigozhin was going to have this, you know, revolt, this revolution against Putin, he was allowed to go to Belarus. Then he was allowed to come to St. Petersburg, Russia, and, you know, go through items in his house, which in itself you would wonder why. I think there was some type of deal or relationship with Putin uh, there's a lot of money in the Wagner Group in Africa, I mean, an enormous amount of money. And so I have always kind of believed that there was something going down. And then he returns, like I said, to St. Petersburg. And you look at this crash and you, you just sort of have to think, OK, Putin got what he needed out of him. I don't know who knew what or had you know money buried somewhere. And maybe he gave Putin his, quote, share. It's a speculation. And then after that, uh, he took a plane ride, and that was the end. So I think there's a lot more to this story that maybe we'll find out, maybe we won't for decades. Yeah. It's once your friend, uh, not always your friend when it comes to Vladimir Putin. Exactly. This is uh, to, to shoot him out of the sky or sabotage the plane or, I mean, it's it's uh, it's movie stuff. It's Hollywood stuff. Sure. And it happens. And, and of course, Russia's investigating it. So like I said, it could be decades before we ever actually find out. <laughs> You're right. Bob, the Republican candidates for president of the United States minus Donald Trump uh, gathered in Milwaukee to debate. And I, it seems to me the, the top story is ab- about the antics of a guy whose name we uh, d- do not know and cannot pronounce. Uh, along with, in, at least in my view, former Vice President Mike Pence uh, seemed to really assert himself uh, whether that gets any of them uh, out of single-digit poll numbers, time will tell. I think if you look at the debate, and, and especially of Vivek Ramaswamy, who I go to India a lot, so I can't pronounce his name. I'm one of the few, maybe. And he's an Ohioan. Uh, a fascinating story. Went to Harvard, went to Yale, was worth $15 million before he graduated you know, out of law school. And um, I think that if you have to rate you know, who took the debate, of course, Trump wasn't there. If Trump had been there, the oxygen would have been out of the room. But I, I believe that Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy are the two that came out on, on top out of that debate. Now, there were some things that uh, Ramaswamy did that were real questionable, overaggression, for example. But DeSantis, who needed to be, you know, prominent and out front, and uh, if he could steal a little bit of Ramaswamy's energy, DeSantis might have looked better, you know, on the stage. I think the people that got 
probably hurt the most, Asa Hutchinson. He could barely get in into it. He's a really nice guy, by the way. I served with he and his brother Tim. Really nice people, but he could barely get in. And then, of course, you had um, the governor, who very few people, Bergham, who very few people know, and he didn't, you know, get any traction in there. But I think the Chris Christie, he was okay. Uh, he's never going to get anywhere with anybody that you know likes Trump. But uh, I think that the one that stood out that really kind of just melted into the wallpaper for several reasons was Mike Pence in that debate. So I would just say that Haley and Ramaswamy, for what it's worth, uh, were the two that probably, if you have to rate it, came out uh, ahead. And about the same time, Donald Trump, a former president of the United States, turns himself in to be booked and mugshotted and uh, was he arraigned at, at the Fulton County Courthouse? No, he was just uh, uh, processed. Mugshot. Is that right? You're right. And fingerprints and mugshot. Okay. And then uh, immediately turns that mugshot, uh, puts it on social media, right. begins to raise money on it. And uh, the mugshot is a defiant stare at the camera. Uh, what do you make of all that? I looked at that mugshot and I thought, if I was in prison with him, he's going to be my gang leader. <laughs> it, you know, it was a it was a tough picture. I mean, I think he on purpose wanted yeah. that look. Yeah, uh, they 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 practiced that when he wanted that look. What fascinates me the most about Trump, I guess, in any situation, you know, a lot of people you get a mugshot, you would you know it's out there and national, and they turned it into something. You know, they turned it into a moneymaker and. Uh, it's, but it is historic. It's one of the first, uh, well, it is the first mugshot of a of a president uh, that's ever you know, been taken. Mugshots in themselves are debatable because you you aren't uh, through a trial process yet. Yet they go out there. Uh, they they have been debated, by the way, at all levels about having them. It and, and at the same time that uh, the Republican candidates were debating, he went on. Twitter, now called X, uh, with Tucker Carlson, the once and now fired Fox News personality. What are we to make of that? I watched some of it, and it was by turns fascinating. Well, as always with Trump, it's by turns fascinating and uh, crazy at the same time. Yeah, he was probably better with Tucker Carlson, um, you know, uh, than, than most times, maybe more focused. Uh, than in some of the of the past ones, but obviously <clears throat> because of the style of Trump, and uh, he's a he's a brand guy, a marketer, and due to you know some of his creativity, I I just did not realize Kevin, but he when he couldn't buy Mar-a-Lago for the price he wanted, he bought the property in front of it and threatened to put up like a seven-story building to block Mar-a-Lago's view of the, of the ocean. I mean, I, if you just look at his history, what he did was to counter that debate first, you know, with his own show. And then in its own weird way, he completely sucked all the air out of the room by going to Georgia yesterday, the day after the debate. So he becomes the story again. Uh, it, the debate didn't even really have much time to to gel. It was still about Trump. Yeah, and and at the same time, the current president of the United States, Joe Biden, who has a laundry list of of accomplishments and an economy that seems headed in the right direction, uh, 
can't win for trying, bad poll numbers, uh, lack of enthusiasm for his reelection campaign for an over 80 uh, presidential incumbent. Uh, where are we headed there? Well, I, I mean, I think you put it, you know, accurately. Uh, every step he's taken, for example, with the Bidenomics, um, what they've tried to get out there, all of the polling indicates he just can't get his message out there of what, you know, he has done or what he's responsible for. It, it just doesn't sink in. And people will even, for example, I've seen some of these stats, Kevin, and it's amazing. They will be questioned about, do you believe we should do this with, you know, the, for example, the electric batteries, the cars, the climate, right? And they will agree down the line with Biden. Then when it comes to the question about what has Biden done on this, they say not much. Yeah. And they just answered all the questions about what he did do. So it, it's very difficult. The age is another factor that's continuing to, to you know, grow out there. And then the other secondary issue, which I've probably beat this to death, but it's very, very true. And I just was amongst a group of 300 people and, uh, you know, not political people. And this whole topic just kept coming up. And it's Kamala Harris. Yeah. Biden is aged and the stress of the office means he has to quit. Something happens. She is the president of the United States. And that invokes, you know, she's got one of some of the worst numbers in American history. So no matter what happens, it's to Trump on one end or Biden on the other end, 70, maybe five or six percent of the people of this country would like two other candidates. As I've said many times, uncharted waters. And I can't think yeah. of a better uh term than that. So, Bob, uh, we'll be back at it next Friday with you okay. when as we move down this road. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Kevin. Bob Nay, uh, always a great authority on everything D.C. We're back, and our guest is Allison Novak of Seven Days, and we're going to talk to her about her story called The Human Toll This in this week's uh, newspaper. Allison, you better tell your bosses over there that uh, you're coming on this show a lot, which means that <laughs> you're writing the best stuff. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> Tell us about Gordon George. So Gordon George, who's featured in a photo at the top of my story that I wrote this week, is a 73-year-old retired IBMer who was living kind of in the hardest-hit flooding area in Barrie. He works nights at Walmart, so he actually was – asleep on Monday when the flood water started to encroach on his house on July 10th. And he, you know, went to his second floor. He, um, his daughter was trying to get him to evacuate, but he, as she called him, was a stubborn old Vermonter and would not. Um, and essentially, you know, his, all of his belongings and his home is, is ruined. The home he has lived in for 14 years. He's living with his daughter, um, temporarily, but, um, I think he is representative of, you know, the the residents of Barrie that have kind of had their lives upended by by the flood. You know, I'm looking at a uh, well, to summarize, you you went to Barrie uh, as I did a couple of weeks ago. We did the show live from Nelson's Hardware uh 2 3 weeks ago. Uh but a a, pic, a photograph in your in your story really caught my eye. Barry City Councilor Michael Deering, a fellow named 
Wakan Johnson and Representative Gina Galfetti all standing there muddy in their boots, uh, having done cleanup. And I, I don't know Mr. Deering or Mr. Johnson, but Gina Galfetti is a tough talking Republican from Barry, uh, who I really like, but, uh, sort of three more politically disparate people you probably won't find. And there they are together, uh, mud splattered, working together to fix that town. That was inspiring. Yeah, Michael Deering is a Republican as well. Um, and he he set up a GoFundMe account for Jaquan Johnson and his family. He used to coach Jaquan in football um, as an assistant coach at Spalding. Now he runs the Barry Youth uh, Football League. Um, and, you know, he saw that Jaquan, basically Jaquan and his, and his family, their home was also destroyed. They were renters on Granite Street in Barrie. And so um, Michael Deering set up a GoFundMe to try to support that family. Um, right now they're living on air mattresses with uh, relatives. Um, and so I spoke with him and, you know, he, he had a really um, powerful quote where he said, you know, something like, you know, it's superhuman how these folks, you know, have had everything, have lost everything and they get up every morning, you know, knowing there'll be better days for them. And I thought that was, that was just really powerful. Uh, Mr. Johnson lost everything. He's 17 years old and you write, he lost his, his, uh, fish Marco, uh, mm-hmm. and everything else. He did. Yeah. I met with him and Kalen, who is his caregiver. It's a very interesting family. So Kalen is a 21-year-old Applebee's waitress. She has had custody of Jaquan and his 16-year-old sister for three years since she was 18. They are relatives of her fiancé. They were all living, the four of them, on Granite Street, and Jaquan and Kalen were home when the flood um, started happening. They grabbed their cats, and they just kind of started trudging through the streets of Barrie trying to get to um, her aunt's house on higher ground. They, you know, had waters. They described it up to their um, waist. Um, and finally, they were picked up in a truck by Kalen's fiance and got to higher ground. But, you know, it was a really traumatic experience for them. Jaquan is um, afraid of water, they, they said. And, you know, when they got to the aunt's house, they just were shaking and cold and crying. And so that story, you know, to me just indicates that there's a lot of trauma for people who kind of rode this out and had to escape or had to kind of, um, you know, leave their homes, there's a lot of trauma that is going to be have to be dealt with. Um, and there's still a lot of uncertainty. I checked in with Kaylin this week, and she said that, you know, they're still crashing on air mattresses. They've applied for a bunch of different apartments, but they have had no luck. She's extending her search to different, you know, pretty much anywhere in Vermont to find an apartment right now. Um, and hoping that Jaquan, because he's going to be a senior at Spalding, and he's actually student council president and co-captain of the football team, that he can maybe crash with a friend during the week so that he could keep on going to Spalding. So, you know, a lot of really tough um, tough times for, for these folks that were affected by the flooding. I interviewed the folks at Nelson's Hardware and then interviewed uh, the owner, um, her name is escaping me, of uh, the Kitty Corner Cafe, where she uh, found foster homes for 57 cats, and she's just rebuilding mm. now. I, I, I got to draw your attention to the the last paragraph of your story, where uh, Con Johnson is getting out of a of the Yipes Automotive Store on North Main Street in Barry and asking employees where 
where they need help. And they looked at him confused until he told them, uh, we're here to help you. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you're right. There's, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, there is. And, you know, the city manager, Nicholas Storelli Castro, you know, was saying that, of course, you know, there's a lot of things, more kind of technical, logistical things to deal with, like picking up trash and repaving and things like that. But, you know, he he said he's also really worried and kind of aware of, of the human toll of the flooding. And one of the things I thought was interesting is he said, like, one of the priorities for the city was to kind of get the trash removed as quickly as possible. And he said that, Someone had had all of his kind of like family heirlooms and relics out on the curb um, that had been destroyed by the flood and, you know, thanked, thanked the city, thanked Nicholas for getting them out of his sight as quickly as possible because he just couldn't bear to look at them anymore. Um, and I don't know. I thought that really resonated as well with me. Uh, a couple of good things. Uh, the municipal swimming pool is open. And the Barry Farmer's Market and Courier Park Concert Series are happening. So tomorrow is Saturday. I don't know what the weather report is, but uh, the swimming pool is open. And uh, there's some good things to look at. But, boy, it's a it's a tough road in, in Barry, Montpelier, and a lot of these communities. Tell us also, Allison, about Sean Trader, the executive director of the Rainbow Bridge Community Center. Yeah, when I was in Barrie, I kept hearing about Rainbow Bridge and kind of the efforts they made following the flood to just kind of step up and serve as a hub for um, getting supplies and distributing things and, you know, addressing people's needs. Um, and so when I was down there, I met with Sean, and Sean basically, you know, had this really colorful bike with fake flowers and a little stuffed dog um, in the basket, and Sean has been, you know, biking around um, trying to assess what people need. Um, they started a fund uh, where they will now are providing cash assistance to some families. Like Sean told me that they um, have, were supporting a family who was staying at a campground to pay for their campsite. Um, and Rainbow Bridge will also start doing monthly um, uh, community cares days is what they're calling them, but they're going to, you know, have a number of therapists and counselors and legal aid representatives at Rainbow Bridge, which is right on North Main Street. Um, the first event is September 17th, um, so that people can come and kind of get the help they need. And Sean really kind of made me think about the, you know, the trauma and the, um, and the, and the human impact of the, of the flooding. Allison, what did you discover in Barrie that you didn't know? Well, I think it's really, you know, kind of easy when you're outside of the parts of Vermont that were affected to, you know, think, oh, things are probably okay. But I think, I don't know, I think in talking to people, I just started thinking about what a long road ahead it is for so many people and how I think it's it's very easy to think in terms of the more quantifiable things that we've lost. But, you know, there are lots of people. I, I mean, Barry, I really admire Barry as a community. I met so many people who, you know, have little nonprofits and, you know, are really working tirelessly to help their neighbors. Um, but I think there is going to be this need for, you know, mental health support and other kind of counseling. And I, I know our state is not... Um, we don't have enough of that right now. So 
I don't know. That, that is a story I kind of want to follow going forward, you know, how, how people are rebuilding their lives and, and uh, getting the help they need to kind of address the, address the trauma. So let me get this straight. The captain of the Spalding High School football team and the student body president is right now homeless. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. Okay. Let's let that sink in. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we... Yeah. We And then the next question is, why hasn't somebody fixed this? And in our sped up Internet age, we, I, we either expect government to step in and, and fix this overnight uh, or we, we expect it to resolve itself, uh, but it doesn't. And it turns out that we have to fix this. And I wonder, mm-hmm. uh, everyone's working overtime in Barry, but did you see any – upward trajectory in the ability of the community to get housing for the people who have been thrown out of their homes? You know, what people kept saying to me is this was a crisis before the flood and we didn't have the answers then. And so we're not magically going to have the answers now. Um, and so that really stuck with me. But I know I, I met with a bunch of people at Capstone um, Community Action, which is actually right right near where Jaquan and Kalen uh, lived. Um, and, you know, they are working really hard, you know, to try to find solutions and help help residents of Barrie. Um, I know there are FEMA trailers coming. I checked in with the city manager of Barrie yesterday to find out if Barrie will be getting any of those FEMA trailers. And he said that he hasn't heard anything yet. But hopefully there will be some positive developments in the next week or two around that, which I'll also be following. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's just, there's not a lot of housing to be had. And, and so where do these people go who, who, you know, have lost their home? What lessons do we need to take from this, Allison? What, what have you learned? I've spent most of my time in Montpelier, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think what strikes me is like, uh, most of the people affected from, from what I can tell, are people that were already kind of on the edge in terms of their financial security and, um, you know, their just stability. And so, you know, they were the ones who were living in the north end of Barrie um, that was most flooded. And so I, I just I, I feel like there's got to be a better way to support those members of our community, you know, Kaylin, who's the waitress at Applebee's, you know, was working 60 hours a week, these double shifts from 10 a.m. to midnight to try to, you know, save up money and, you know, just working so hard to just try to get her and her family's basic needs met. And um, there's just got to there's got to be more that we can do to help help people like that. Yeah. And I think we have the smarts, uh, the know how and the money uh, to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we need some leadership to help figure it out and navigate all the processes. But uh, it's it's heartbreaking uh, and also inspiring to see the folks that you profile in your story. Uh, thank you so much for bringing it to us. Of course. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll be continuing to follow it. Okay, as will we, and uh, we'll have you back again. Uh, we're going to make you the celebrity Vermont Viewpoint seven days uh, rep- correspondent. Sounds good to me. Okay. Allison Novak of Seven Days Newspaper. You can uh, find her at uh, com. Read her story about the flooding in Barrie called The Human Toll. We're back. 
Uh, before we uh, start talking about movies, I just want to uh, go back to Wakan Johnson, uh, highlighted in Allison Novak's story in Seven Days. He's the captain of the uh, of the Spalding High School football team and the student body president at Spalding High School. He is homeless. Uh, he lost everything in the flood. And I, I, he's probably sleeping on a floor somewhere. I've already gotten one email from a citizen offering a room in their home. Uh, I can connect you. Uh, I can call Allison back, but, uh, you know, these things are never simple. But, uh, if you've got a room in your house, if you've got housing, uh, for people, people in Barry, Montpelier, Johnson, Cabot, uh, they need housing and they're, they're hurting. So, uh, give me a call at the station and we'll connect you. Our next guest, uh, is the Vermont Viewpoint film and TV critic Keenan Ellis, who joins us. It's pretty early out there. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay. A little scratchy voice there. Uh, you know, it's 7.30 in the morning and, uh, you know, I feel a little guilty jumping from such important topics of conversation. Uh, to movies, but you know, let's, let's bring some, let's bring some fun. Oh yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah, yeah, I think it's a necessary antidote. Um, okay. We're gonna, first of all, the number to call is 244-1777 because after the, well, pretty quickly, we're gonna turn to Keenan Ellis's, uh, sort of top 10 movie list that you're building if you are just beginning, uh, to watch movies. But so, Give us a call with your favorite movie. Uh, but first, we want to talk about Barbie, which I have seen. Nothing more appropriate or politically incorrect than two white guys sitting around talking about Barbie. But go ahead. You've seen it. Tell us about it. Well, I, I think we're allowed to have opinion, opinions. I, I, You know, it's a movie after all, and we went to go see it. I do think it is probably the most important thing for us to say that this movie was not made for us, and that is okay. And that is okay. We can enjoy it in our own way, and uh, and let everyone else enjoy it too. It's I think it's the the men that are gatekeeping a movie that was clearly not made for them. That is the problem. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I saw it a while ago. Um, I'm honestly more interested in what you have to say. I li- I liked it a lot. I love the director Greta Gerwig. Her movies are absolutely fantastic. She made uh, Little Women a couple years ago, which is, I think, the best adaptation of that famous book and the great indie movie Lady Bird as well. Um, I would say out of the three, I, I would say Barbie is probably the weakest of the three, but that's more a testament to how good her first two movies are than uh, any uh, indication on quality on Barbie. Um, but yeah, what, what did you think before? I, I really liked it. Uh, I, I went with, uh, your mother and I thought it was fantastic. I think to summarize it, let's see, a sly poke at the white male patriarchy. Uh, Mm -hmm. she flips the society on its, on its face so that we could see what, um, what the world would be like if women dominated the society the way white men have for so long. And that was a little jarring and really educational. 
I thought it was really well done. I mean, gosh, the set, the production design, the color uh, was yeah. just a joy. And uh, Ryan Gosling, who can dominate a screen with his abs, uh, I thought he really effectively took second, played second fiddle to Margot Robbie, which was appropriate. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting that Ryan Gosling got the flashier part um, in the movie, which is a, mostly about the female experience. Um, but I, I do think not enough credit is given to Margot Robbie's performance, who um, historically I've not always loved as an actor. I more like her as a producer because she produces a lot of these movies that she's in. But I, I thought her transformation from basically uh, this plastic ideal of a woman to an actual woman was pretty amazingly done. She grows warmer and more human the more the movie goes on. And by the end of it, you totally believe her as a full human being. And I know that's, that sounds like faint praise, but from where she starts as a Barbie doll, as a literal Barbie doll, that transformation is really subtly done. And, and it's a subtle performance, and it allows for Ryan Gosling to give one of the more flashy, as you say, and ridiculous and hilarious performances of the year. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think... It's also a necessary move. I think the most important people to see this are guys like us. I think uh, it's a it's a necessary mo- reminder movie sure. for the rest yeah. of us. And I the the things that I take from it outside the movie itself are that this thing has now made a billion dollars. It's grossed a billion dollars, first time ever for a female director. And Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie can basically call their own shots in Hollywood and make whatever they yep. want to make. And that is exciting. And yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's exciting because it's Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie are actual artists who want to tell good, interesting stories and have the ability to do that. Um, and that is not always the case in Hollywood. A lot of these blank checks that are given out are given out to the wrong people. And I, I, I have to say, I, I, there are two people, these two, these two women, you could not give a blank check to better, more deserving people. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I can't wait to see what they do next. Oh, me too. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick break and, but, but first let's set up. What we're going to do next, which is Keenan's Keenan's film list. Tell us where this came from and what we're doing. So I I recently moved out of Hollywood and I've been meeting a lot of people that are not fanatical about films uh, or even to say that they are uh, film. I don't know. they, they, They don't watch movies at all. And, um, I'm constantly being asked, uh, where do I start? How do I get into movies? And uh, that's always been a bit, uh, tricky, tricky answer because there are the classics. Obviously you could say the Godfather, you could say the French connection, you could say the exorcist, but a yeah. lot of these movies feel like homework. 
Um, and so I've, I've, make, I've been making a list of 10 movies that will make you fall in love with movies. Okay. And so the, they're not the obvious choices, but, um, if, yeah, so it's, we would like suggestions of movies that you think that, that made you fall in love with movies, movies that made you feel like, wow, I just, I just love them. They're just great. Okay. My text is, is my text is blowing up. My email's blowing up. The switchboard's blowing up. Keenan, start with, let's start the list with you. Uh, give us a couple of films that can make you fall in love with movies. There are the classics. Um, obviously I just watched the Shawshank Redemption, which I kind of forgot how amazing that movie is. Right. And by the end of it, you're just, you're trembling. You're just, you're just, you're crying. It's incredible. So yeah, I, but the prompt is, uh, the movies I focused on were the movies that really gave you an emotional wallop. So a, a couple, uh, Creed is one, a little less obvious, the Michael B. Jordan Rocky boxing movie. Interesting. I don't think there's a movie I more likely that I'm going to cheer at the end of, um, and I, the, the other one that I would give, and then I, if, if you've got a lot of callers, I'd like to turn it over to them, I would say something like The Iron Giant, which is Ooh. an animated film, which uh, I, I don't think there's a human alive who could watch that movie and not be weeping at the end. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, I, I've got to go to the text message from, of course, your uh, surrogate uncle, uh, Bob Sherman, and of course, uh, of course, Butch Cassidy, uh, leads his list. But my question is, does Butch Cassidy, uh, that's on my list too, but is that too obvious, too easy one? You're, you're sort of going beneath the surface for your two. No, 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 no. Like I said, the Shawshank Redemption is probably the most obvious movie you can think of to have, get an emotional reaction from somebody. Um, and it, it's it's just good to have these out. I love Butch Cassidy. It's one of the great endings of all time. Um, and I, I think the 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 chemistry between Redford and Newman is one of the great special effects in movie history. I think it's a perfect suggestion, Bob Sherman. Good to see you. Good to hear about you. And and also remember, Redford was originally thought of as. Uh, going to play Butch and Newman was going to play Sundance and Redford uh, wanted to play Sundance and Newman agreed. So. Well, I, you know, n- not to bag on Robert Redford, but I don't think he could have pulled, pulled it off. I, don't, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think they're perfectly cast I, I, to have that kind of charm that Paul Newman has. Oh. You, you need that to play Butch, I think. And as great as Redford is, I don't think he quite has that level of movie star charm. I can't swim. Are you kidding me? The fall's going to kill you. Anyway, okay. Uh, okay, I've got one. The Great Escape. Is that too obvious? No, that's a great. Actually, that's not on my list. I'm going to add it right now. Okay. The Great uh, Escape, Steve McQueen. Oh. One of the great escape scenes that... A bullet, his movie Bullet hits all the ah, Bullet, okay. Okay, Greg Titus at the control, at the soundboard is on the air. He's got some suggestions. Marty. 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 Uh, Cliff Robertson, 1968. If you're not crying, get the end of that. Great movie. 
Cliff Robertson, who who played John F. Kennedy in PT-109 yep. and many yep. other movies, yep. married to Dina Merrill. Check that out, Keenan. Marty. Yeah, it was based yeah. on the uh, book of Flowers for Algernon. So. He's a uh, he's a uh, handicapped yes. uh, uh, character. Is that right? Yeah. Greg? Um, he's uh, uh, and they 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 treat him so he's uh, um, so so his brain power is back, and then it goes from there. Oh, so wow. So I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I've never heard of this movie. No, I, I would please. Yeah, I'm, Charlie. I will watch it tonight. This looks fantastic. Okay. Well, Greg Curtis Titus, Ford? what year would that have been made? That would have been '68. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why. Uh, and as far as as the movie that made me watch movies, Hard Days Night. Yeah. Hard Days Hard Night. A Hard Days Night, the Beatles movie. Yeah. Yeah. I was eight or nine years old, and yeah. And me too, uh, glued, but had no idea what was going on, as I recall. Well, it was the Beatles, though. It was just yeah. fantastic. They were running around, yeah. and chased by, yeah, chased by people. Yeah. It was, it, it yeah. was crazy. But yeah, that was that's the first movie I remember sort of hitting me upside the head. So, okay, yeah. uh, that's fantastic. I, 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 their most recent documentary, that eight-hour documentary, just destroyed me. The Beatles yeah. forever are just a great hang. I just want to hang out with them. Okay. Any others? Uh, for me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, keep going. You know, I just watched Thelma and Louise. Oh, um, a great road trip uh, action movie. I, 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 the genre is a little confused, but uh, it's with uh, Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon are on the run from the law. It's, uh, it's fantastic, and it's it would be a good double feature to watch with Barbie, actually. Yeah. Um, both female-driven movies with female um, female perspectives. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is Mad Max: Fury Road. <laughs> I think that that might be one, that might be the greatest action. Is movie. this the one with Charlize Theron? It's the one with Charlize Theron. It's at the most crazy film. Made perhaps ever made. Um, I just showed my sister, your daughter, Freeland, uh, a movie called Galaxy Quest, <laughs> which is a satire of Star Trek and is absolutely absolutely hilarious. It's about um, aliens that think a Star Trek show is real, and so they kidnap the cast, the shallow Hollywood cast, to fight an alien warlord with them. And it's very funny, and by the end of it, we were both crying, which is a really good indicator of a good movie. Okay, um, is Galaxy Quest available on Netflix? It's – I'm sorry, I don't mean to jump in. Please do. Yes, but no, I, I know it's available It's available on a streaming service. One of Alan Rickman's best performances, and that's saying a ton. That's saying a lot. Because um, I've yeah. seen – I like Alan Rickman and everything. I've seen him in some bad movies, but Alan Rickman is yeah. always good. Yeah. He's fantastic in it. He plays the Spock-type character, um, <laughs> and it, it's – it's fantastic, and the the scene where you cry is an Alan Rickman scene, and he brings all that Shakespearean training to to four, and it it is fantastic. Oh wow! Okay, God, I'm, I'm I'm wrung out here. I'm, I'm sweating. What else is there, Keenan? Wow. Um. So there's the there's the great Jack Lemmon movie, The Apartment. 
it might be it's considered one of the first romantic comedies him ah. him and Shirley MacLaine yeah. where uh he the move up in his uh at work he allows his bosses to use his apartment for all their affairs oh gosh uh, and uh it's it's written i think and directed by the great Billy Wilder ah. um who did movies like Double Indemnity and Some Like It Hot. Uh, that's a fantastic old movie if you would like to go see it. Um, another, uh, have you ever seen the movie Dave? No. So Dave, if you're ever... Oh, you, you mean Dave with Kevin Klein? With Kevin Klein. Oh, yeah. of course. Of course I've seen it. Yeah. If you're ever feeling down about our current political climate, which I totally understand... Uh, you should watch Dave, which is um, Kevin Klein plays a lookalike of the president of the United States who has a stroke. And they bring Kevin Klein in to pretend to be the president. And it's a it's a completely irrational, would never happen in real life movie. But it somehow works and it somehow makes sense that this naive but good man suddenly becomes the president and fixes all of our problems with his goodness. Yeah. And it's a, it's about as charming a movie as you can get. Okay. Um, Titus is on the other side of the glass here uh, talking about The Godfather 2. Well, no, but also, Dan, I was just talking with Danny. So Danny mentioned when he was a kid, sports movies like The Rookie, The Sandlot, Field of Dreams, mm-hmm. you know, Field again, I mean, if you want to weep at the end of a movie. Field of Dreams. You're you're weeping. Yeah. 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 Keenan, does that qualify? Does that meet your criteria? Absolutely. Hey, the first movie I said was Creed. So uh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Sports, sports movies can destroy you. They can make you cheer. I yeah, I, I we grew up with Field of Dreams. We grew up with Hoosiers. Oh. Um, yeah. Um if if you're uh, uh, a, a man with a brother, you should watch Warrior uh, with Tom Hardy. It's a it's a it's a mixed martial arts sports movie about two brothers, and uh, it it I believe it's my brother Jackson's favorite movie of all time. Wow! And also, Danny brought up uh, Rudy, right? Uh, Rudy, of yeah, course. Yeah, that's another classic. Well, Rudy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rudy. Just, yeah, um, so- unbelievable. There's there's a lot of generational stuff going on. Danny's Danny's like a sports guy, so uh, Titus is more of like Godfather two uh, genre. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. okay. I mean, the Godfather two, I, I, I'm more of a Godfather one head myself, uh, but the Godfather you can't go wrong with the Godfather part two. Okay, uh, we have to go, but uh, Great Escape, All the President's Men, uh, Three Days of the Condor with Robert Redford. I, I, you can see where I'm going here. Political intrigue, spies, but uh, we've got to go. Keenan Ellis, Art of Vermont Viewpoint TV and Movie Critic. Thanks. We'll come back and keep talking about this movie list we're building. Yeah, when I finish it, I'll, I'll run down the list. Oh, please do. Look forward to having you back. Thanks. Yeah, have a good one. That is our show for today. Our thanks uh, to Jonathan Hoffman of uh, Direct Aid International, uh, Bob Ney, Allison Novak at Seven Days, Keenan Ellis, our movie and TV critic, and everybody else. Greg Titus making a cameo in the movie section of the show. 
If you want to be a guest on the show or send us a suggestion for a topic, drop me a line. The show becomes a podcast immediately, actually, if I get him the guest list, thanks to Danny McGivergan, who makes that possible. Uh, and that's uh, that's really good, worth going back. I actually listen to it in the car. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at KevinKLS.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Conflict of Interest. I'm on Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow me. My podcast, Conflict of Interest, examines the issues we deal with on this show. I will be back Wednesday of next week. I don't think we're going to do a field show. I want to go to Hardwick uh, to talk about the flooding, but I've got some other things to do, some other guests to get on. But we will go back in the field very soon. Remember... Harry's Hardware in Cabot, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. I'll be there. I'm not buying beer for everyone. I owe Dale Brown a beer, and that is where I will draw the line. Again, I'll be back Wednesday of next week. And uh, as always, we'll talk politics in Vermont and the nation, my garden, everything else on my mind and yours. Our show is produced by me and Danny McGivergan and Greg Titus and a bunch of others made possible by all the folks at WDEV. Today is Charlotte Strasser's birthday, and I think we're collecting somewhere for a little uh, birthday party. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint Live Radio on the Friendly Pioneer WDEV.